0: You're listening to TIP.
1: On today's show, we're going to be talking about one of the most controversial billionaires in the world, Mr. Mark Zuckerberg. As everyone knows, Mark is the founder of Facebook and his personal net worth is estimated to be $61 billion. As Facebook continues to have its challenges with the public perception, the platform continues to generate significant cash flow. And on today's show, we cover some of the most interesting questions and answers that Mark has fielded lately. So, without further delay, here's our discussion on billionaire Mark Zuckerberg.
0: You are listening to the Investors Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to today's show at the Investors Podcast. I'm your host Preston Pish, and as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host Stig Brodersen. Like we said in the introduction, we're going to be covering the thoughts and ideas of Mr. Mark Zuckerberg today. So, without further delay, we're going to cover the first question. And the first question that Mark was asked: What was the hardest part in the early years of Facebook? And this was Mark's response:
2: One of the hardest parts for me was actually when. Yahoo offered to buy the company for a lot of money because, up until that point, that was this turning point in the company where before that, every day we'd just come in and kind of do what we thought was the right next thing to do, right? We'd open to more schools, we opened beyond schools and launched more photos because that's what seemed like the next thing that we needed to do to help people express themselves and, and understand more what was going on around them. But then Yahoo came in with, with this really meaningful offer a billion dollars we had 10 million people using the product at the time. It wasn't as if it were obvious that we were going to succeed far beyond that. And that was the first point where we really had to to look at the future and say, wow, is what we're going to build going to actually be so much more meaningful for this? And you know, that caused a lot of interesting conversations in the company and and with our investors and you know, at the end of that Dustin and I just decided, you know, no, we think that we can actually go connect more than just the 10 million people who are in schools, we can go beyond that and, and have this really be a successful thing. And we just had to go for it, but that was really stressful because a lot of people really thought that we should sell the company. So for a lot of the folks who joined early on, they weren't really aligned with me, right? For them, they joined and being able to sell a company for a billion dollars after a couple of years, was, that was like a home run and it is a home run, right? And And that's, I get that. I think that the fact that I didn't communicate very well about what we were trying to do caused this huge tension. And the part that was painful wasn't turning down the offer. It was the fact that after that, huge amounts of the company quit because they didn't believe in what we were doing.
1: This is a really interesting exchange. And while he was, he was saying that, I kept thinking to myself, what would you have done in that situation? Immediately, I, I guess my first intuition was I would have definitely sold the company. But then I thought a little bit more about what the metrics would have looked like that he was seeing. And that's the thing about this kind of business—is it's all. I mean, he can see everything in the numbers, right? It's all coming out. He can see the number of signups. He can see the dwell time on the site. He can see all of that stuff. But really interesting exchange. Stick. I'm curious to hear your thoughts.
3: Facebook was founded back in February 2004, and uh, Yahoo was not the first suitors, not the first of the string of suitors. Really, Google, MySpace, for those of us who remember that. The Washington Post, there've been so many huge companies that are rumored to want to take over Facebook at the time. And probably the most talked about, that was Yahoo's offer in June 2006. If you look at some of the numbers, around 10 million users, that's a lot after just a little more than two years, they had around $20 million in revenue at the time. So it was not, I mean, on a metrics basis, obviously this was outrageous and many people would say so, but it was very interesting discussion I think he had with himself. At this point in time, Max Zuckerberg was 22 years old. I mean, think about saying no to that much money when you're that age. But perhaps that's also one of the reasons why he did say no. If you're 22 and you already had 10 million users on your platform, why wouldn't you just continue? And and also think there is something to be said about being in a position when someone offers you a billion dollars. If that happens, you probably do not need the money. For him, perhaps, one of the things he was getting at was to have a chance to change the world, have a chance to test the new things on his platform. And you can test a lot more if you're the owner of Facebook than if you have a billion dollars. At least that is, I think, what, what Mark Zuckerberg was thinking at the time. I guess from that perspective, it makes sense. It is interesting to consider, though, that Peter Thiel, one of the first, very first investors in Facebook, he tried to convince Zuckerberg to sell because for him, it was all VC money. I don't know how many X he, he would make on that investment, but yeah, why wouldn't you say yes? But for Zuckerberg, obviously, it was, he was more the visionary, not, not the money behind Facebook.
1: I think a lot of the uh, venture capital investors would have been providing so much pressure on the sale. I don't know that a lot of them would have been wanting to kind of hang around and see how well 22-year-old Mark Zuckerberg would have done as he grows the business. The next question that Mark was asked, how do you think about making big changes to Facebook's platform? And this is how he responded.
2: So I actually think when you do stuff well, you shouldn't have to do big, crazy things. When we started off, we didn't have anything like newsfeed that showed you updates from, from what people were sharing. We just had profiles. And what we found were originally one of the big behaviors was people would just click around. They'd click on different profiles, hundreds of them, and they'd go through all their friends to see what people had changed, right, to see what the update was in, in their friend's day. We learned from that that people were not just interested in looking up and learning about a person, but also understanding the day-to-day changes. So first, we made this product that just showed in order which of your friends and updated their profile, right, so that at least told you whose profile to click on. And then, you know, the first version of Newsfeed was really simple. All it did was it basically took the content that people were posting and put it in order on your homepage. When things are working well, you use data and you use the qualitative feedback that you're getting from listening to how your community is using your product to tell you what problems to go solve. And then you basically use intuition to figure out what the solutions to those problems might be, and then you test those hypotheses by by rolling them out and getting more data and feedback on that and then that gives you a sense of where to go. We bought the Oculus team for a lot of money. I actually view that as if we'd done a better job of building up some of the expertise to do some of that stuff internally, maybe we wouldn't have had to do that. Instead, we, we hadn't done that. And you know, the Oculus team is by far the most talented team working on that problem. So it just made sense to go make this big move. But you, know, you can't be ahead of everything. So it's better to, to make big moves and be willing to do that than have pride and not do that and never admit that you could have done something better in the past. But I think when stuff is working well, you're learning incrementally and growing that way.
3: For this question, I would really like to talk about Mark Zuckerberg's process in terms of how he's thinking about improving his platform. So first, he would look at his data. That would be the first place for perhaps most business owners, especially this size. And he saw that, say, that people clicked around on their friends' profiles to read out on the status updates. That's one thing. It does not tell you you should create a newsfeed or not necessarily. It's more how he's using his intuition. And that's really the key word here that I would like to talk about. How to use your intuition and then come up with a solution based on that. Most people come to you with problems or come with you with data. Really the challenging thing and, and the way to be competitive today is to provide the solution. That's really what adds value. It's also one of the most common characteristics we see whenever we study billionaires in general. And whenever we talk about intuition, perhaps we can also look at it as a hunch, something that is really hard to quantify. I've read this book about this concept of intuition, which itself is, is a very abstract thing. But apparently, only 25% of adult Americans has intuition as the predominant trait, whereas 75% has the opposite, which is called sensing. If you're a sensing person, you would need to experience the Facebook newsfeed before you can provide feedback. If you have intuition as your dominant trade, you would come up with the solution. Why don't we just create a newsfeed and then start pulling in data? I don't know why we see that with so many of the billionaires. My own thesis is that because they read a lot and they have a good imagination, but it's just something I really wanted to mention here.
1: I really like the discussion around intuition and really kind of subconscious thoughts that kind of drive and help you be creative. There was a book that we covered by Alan Gannett called The Creative Curve. This book was fantastic if you're trying to hone that skill. And one other book that I would recommend that we have not covered on the show that's, in my opinion, one of the best out there for understanding your subconscious There's a book called Deciphering How the Brain Codes Our Thoughts. Wow. This book, I had recently read that and would love to cover it on the show, but it just really doesn't kind of fit our niche. But if you're trying to understand how your subconscious works, that book is fabulous. Again, it's called Deciphering How the Brain Codes Our Thoughts. I didn't have any other follow-up comments on that one, Stig. So we'll go on to the next question that Mark was asked. This question was, what are you most excited about? Over the next coming twenty years, this is his response.
2: So we have this ten-year roadmap, and we're focused on three things: connectivity. Right? So getting everyone in the world on the internet. Right now, more than half the world is not on the internet, which is, I think, a lot of people in, in Silicon Valley probably take this for granted. It just is not uniformly available. And if we want to solve a lot of the the big challenges of the world today, they're not problems that any one group of people or even one country can solve. They really involve coming together and giving everyone an opportunity to participate in, in solving them. So I think connecting everyone is, is really a key thing, which is going to be great for people around the world. The next one is AI. I think that that's just gonna unlock so much potential in so many different domains. And you know, we use it at Facebook for a lot of different things, for showing people content that they're gonna find more meaningful, for making sure that you connect with the people you actually care about on the service. But in a lot of ways, the work that we're doing on ai to push the fundamental state of the art forward is exactly the same stuff that's going into systems that diagnose diseases better or find better drugs to treat people other companies are using when they build self-driving cars and you know these are things that are going to save lives and you know, i heard this story recently that at this conference where someone has built a machine learning application where you can take a picture of a lesion on someone's skin and it can detect instantly whether it's skin cancer with the accuracy of the best dermatologists and and doctors in the world. You're gonna be able to put the power in your doctor's hand to become the best doctor in the world at that thing. Everyone will be the best doctor in the world. That's a really fundamental thing. I get a little bit frustrated, I think, when people fear monger about AI and how it it could end up hurting people, because I I think in, in many real ways around diseases, around driving more safely, that's a really big deal, I think, for the next 10 years. The next thing that I, that I always think is, is going to make a big difference, you know, every 10 or 15 years, there's a new major computing platform that comes around that allows people to do completely different things than they could do before. 20 years ago, most of us were using desktop computers. They were kind of clunky. We used them in, in work because it made our work more productive, but most people didn't use them for fun. Now we have phones, which you know help us connect with each other, and they're much more human devices. But there's going to be another platform after that, And I think that's going to be virtual reality and augmented reality. That, I think, is just going to help people be more creative, experience what other people are feeling much more immersively than than we even can through video and things like that today. I'm really excited about that trend as well.
4: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting, from finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. Vicasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you’re looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vicasa at vacasa.com. That’s vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there’s an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement.
1: Some interesting comments. I don't think anything that he said really surprises anybody as far as what he sees being important moving into the future. There's something that I want to play here on the show. And now that we have an opportunity to talk AI, I recently was introduced to a video where Google has rolled out a new AI platform that a person... Can basically interact with their Google Home. I don't even—I have one of these things, but it's basically the Google's AI service that they're trying to get people to put into their homes. And what you can do is you can contact this device. You can say, hey, Google Home, or hey, Google, make an appointment for me tonight at eight o'clock to have dinner at whatever restaurant. And the Google device will say, okay, no problem. And then what it actually does is it calls the location and it, has, it actually talks to the person, the human on the other end. It has a conversation with that person and then it books the appointment. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pull up this audio and we're going to play it right now on the show so you can hear how insane this is because this is AI that is making this call. And I, I just want people to hear this. This is totally nuts.
0: As I said earlier, our vision for our system is to help you get things done. What happens is the Google Assistant makes the call seamlessly in the background for you? So what you're going to hear is the Google Assistant actually calling a real salon to schedule the appointment for you. Let's listen.
3: Oh, how can I help you? Hi, I'm calling to book a woman's haircut for a client. Um, I'm looking for something on May third. Sure, give me one second. Mhm. Okay, perfect. So I will see Lisa at 10 o'clock on
4: May 3rd. Okay, great. Thanks, great. Have a
1: great day bye.: I don't know what's scarier, the fact that that call took place or the fact that everyone's cheering after it took place. <laughs> <laughs> For me, that's totally nuts. the think that because let's think about how they arrived at this solution. They're taking a bunch of data they're then plowing this data through a neural network that's then coming up with a prediction, right? It's saying, hey, I think that this is the way that I should respond based on, off the data that has been flowed through this model. And then it's providing a response. And this is all being done through deep neural networks. This stuff is totally
3: nuts. I'm pretty amazed. I mean, that this is even possible, especially the mirroring part. One of the things that they would say after this is we match. We make sure that through artificial intelligence, we can, we can match. We can have someone, if it's a female, then our system when the female is around the same age. If they speak with the dialect, they will do the same thing. It is absolutely amazing what it can do. I absolutely agree with Max Zuckerberg whenever he talks about that AI is typically a good thing. If it's safe for cars, if it's about being better at diagnosing diseases, yes, it is better. Now, where I think that AI and machine learning in general is not good, that is when it comes to something like Facebook. And that's actually why I really wanted to play this question. Because whenever Zuckerberg talks about, we use artificial intelligence to give you more meaningful content, that's whenever I hear targeted ads and casino algorithms. (laughs) That is what I'm hearing. That's not by doing better thing for humanity. Where I think it,
1: it even comes into more of a concern, Stig, is more just on basic news because it, it's a confirmation bias algorithm is what, what it really is. Tony Robbins told us during the interview that Ray Dalio and him and some others feel that confirmation bias is probably one of the strongest bias influencing people to make poor decisions in financial markets. And I think that that would probably likely carry over to almost any type of event in your life. And when you look at these AI algorithms pumping people-specific news feeds, it has an ability to polarize the public. I think that there's a real concern there, and I don't know how they necessarily address that, but I think that it's a concern that a lot of people need to be aware of. And I completely agree with you, Stig, where AI, with respect to social media, I don't know that it's a good thing. (laughs) I don't know if it's a good thing at all. It's a very interesting conversation to have, for
3: sure. I think that AI will enable services like Facebook for, I'm about to say, more human misery. I think it's been documented for quite a while now that the more time you spend on Facebook, the worse you feel about yourself. And the way that Facebook is built up around this casino algorithm where you need to, it's almost like you are pulling in a lever to win a prize and that prize might be more likes or that fix whenever someone has responded to your... Through text and you get that notification. I think there will come a lot more initiatives like that. And what is good for Facebook is that you will spend more time there and you'll, through Facebook, also spend more money. I think for a human welfare perspective, social media and services that is really much tied to you as a person would probably also be where AI is exploiting us as consumers uh, the most. And interesting enough, also where it will help us the most so that was really why I wanted to play this, especially because it was Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, who brought it up.
1: All right. So moving on to the next question that Mark was asked, he was asked about his intentions of internet.org and the initiatives that aim to bring affordable internet access to less developed countries. And this was his response.
2: For those of you guys who haven't heard of internet.org and what we're doing here, we have this whole effort where we're trying to help everyone in the world get on the internet. It turns out that uh, the vast majority of people in the world have no access to internet. right? And living in the US, or especially here in, in Silicon Valley, it's pretty easy to, to miss that fact. But it turns out that um, there are about 7 billion people in the world, and only about point. Seven or or 2.9 billion people have any access to the internet at all. So there are more than four billion people, the majority of people in the world who don't have any access. And that's what we're trying to solve through this internet.org program, where we basically go around the world working with mobile operators and governments and local entrepreneurs to be able to offer some basic internet services for free. The way that I kind of think about this is it's kind of like, you know, in the US, we have 911. So even if you can't afford to pay for you know, your mobile phone, you can still always dial 911 and you can get help on, on basic things that you need. And I just think that there should be a version of this for the internet where people can access you know, some basic education information, health information, job listings, so some basic things that you need. The idea is that by getting access to this, this content, we actually find that more people who use these basic services then go and decide to go pay for a data plan and get full access to the internet. So you know, out of those 4 billion people, it actually, a lot of them can afford to pay for the internet, but you know maybe they grew up and they didn't have a computer, and they haven't used the internet and they're not sure why they, they would want the internet yet, but by trying it out and, and using some of these basic services, a lot of folks then end up using it. So what we found uh, in research that other firms and, and companies have done is that for every 10 people that gain access to the internet, one person is lifted out of poverty. In countries like India, right? I mean, India has 1.25 billion people, and uh, actually more than a billion of them are not on the internet. So if we could snap our fingers and connect all of them, then there would actually be 100 million fewer people in India in poverty. I mean, I actually think of this is one of the bigger things that we need to go around and, and do in the world. And it kind of makes sense, right? If you think about it, if people need a lot of things to, to live good lives, but access to education information, health information, job opportunities, all that, that kind of stuff, are a lot of the things that people need to be able to go get jobs and, and, and join the modern economy. So in, in a country like India, where a lot of people are not connected to the internet, giving people those tools really is pretty empowering. And it's not the only thing that needs to happen, but I think it's one of the, the big things that we're working on doing. When I was getting started in my dorm room, you, you don't kind of dream about one day, we're not just gonna build a service that a lot of people use, but we're also gonna try to get people on the internet. But you know now we, we're a bigger company and, and a lot of people use Facebook. And we have the resources to go try to take on some of these bigger problems. So I feel like we have a responsibility to do that. I'm excited about this and excited to keep doing it.
3: Let's take a quick break and hear from
4: today's sponsors. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one and actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account while we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB.
3: All right, back to the show.
1: That's some pretty interesting stuff. To have that mission to try to spread, really, I see it as spreading knowledge around the world and giving people access to knowledge. But I don't think Mark's intent is to create more market share for his business. I think he's just truly doing this to help make people more educated and help people have access to information. Stig, I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on the question.
3: I think you're right. As an investor, you kind of feel that he might want to grow a new market. That's kind of like the first idea that you have. I don't think that's, that's it at all, and especially if you look at how Facebook is making money in places where people do not have internet, and especially very poor people, there are not a lot of money in targeted ads. I mean, if you just look at it as simple as something like that, I also think it's a philanthropic way of looking at the world. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, in his defense, I know I was bashing him before, in his defense, he pledged to give away 99% of his Facebook CS yes, to charity. And just like someone like Warren Buffett talks about how he's not good at giving money away so he's outsourcing that he's better at accumulating capital he so he should do what he's best at i also like that mark zuckerberg being a tech person that he would use that competitive advantage to help with poverty around the world i have one thing here that i would uh, really like to talk about in those regards i would like to talk about something called mpesa something i stumble on here and end up looking more and more into is really payments for the unbanked. In PESA, M is for mobile, and PESA means money in Swahili. That's a service that was launched already back in 2007, but has really gained a lot of traction here recently. You can use that in... Originally, it was rolled out in Kenya, but now you can also use it in in Tanzania, Afghanistan, South Africa, and India. You can think of this as Square in the US. Basically, it's a service that allows you to deposit, withdraw... Transfer money and pay for goods and services easily uh, with your mobile device. And the reason why I bring this up is that I see a lot of promise because of the progress we see in technology right now. I mean, just like Africa skipped landlines and went directly to mobile phones, what we see right now in these countries is that they skip the entire process of credit cards and they go directly to Square because it's just a so much more efficient way for them to do business. And I'm saying this because I feel that because of the technology, we might look at poverty different in the future. This is not the way of saying that we won't have poverty in the future. I don't think we'll ever avoid that, but I think that we might see a change in the way that people can interact and people can take themselves out of poverty around the world. so that was one of the reasons why I really wanted to play this clip here today and also to show that despite Pressed on me continuously, episode after episode, whenever we get the chance, try to bash uh, Facebook. I also think we need to give credit when credit is due. All right. So this is the point in the show where we play a question from the audience.
1: And this question comes from Thomas.
0: Hi, President Stick. My name is Thomas from Belgium. First off, I wanted to let you know that I'm a huge fan of your show. I've been listening to it since you guys started it. And I've learned a lot uh, throughout the years, not only about investing, but you really introduced us to much broader topics and and thought leaders, how to live by your values among others, for which I cannot thank you guys enough. So on top of that, I would have never had the courage going to the Berkshire meeting without the great instructions and the practical tips which you've been sending out through your mailing list. So thanks again for that. Anyhow, to my question, I was wondering whether you guys are convinced users of checklists, I've read a few articles and books such as the Checklist Manifesto, and I've heard you mentioning sometimes there are certain red flags you look out for when you're analyzing businesses. Therefore, I was wondering whether you consider them a necessary requirement to avoid certain kind of biases which might lead us to wrong conclusions when we're analyzing investments. Thank you very much.
1: My response would be yes, I do follow a checklist, but mine's not actually written on a piece of paper that I literally go line by line, kind of like computer code. But I have a process. A lot of the process that I use can be seen if you check out any of the articles that I write on Forbes. The methodology that I use for every time I do an intrinsic value assessment for a company is the methodology that I use and the thought process that I use as I step through. I always start off trying to understand holistically, what does the business do? I go through that analysis. I see you know, how much do they do in sales, just to kind of give myself a general idea of what the business is. If I feel like the business has been filtered based off of enterprise value to EBIT at a good return, okay, I'm using that as a filtering tool. I then go in and I calculate the intrinsic value based off of a discount cash flow analysis and stick an I talk a lot about that. We have videos and all that kind of stuff on how we do that, but then I figure out what I think that the return is going to be as a percentage. I'm basically calculating the IRR of the business, and then I compare that IRR to every other investment opportunity that's out there on the public markets, and then I compare that to how I would invest that money operationally into the business that I own. and If I could get a better return comparable to the risk, And so that's really where I step into the comparative analysis of the return to other returns that I could get in the market. So let me give you an example. Let's say that I just did the intrinsic value for a business and I calculated it at 8%. And then I compare that to the S&P 500, which I think is giving you 3% or less today, compared to the 10-year treasury, which is also around 3%. And so I'm comparing it to all these other different asset classes. Now, let me give you an example. Let's say that I just calculated the intrinsic value of a business and it was 3%. And I can go to the S&P 500 and get 3%. I am clearly, obviously going to pick the S&P 500 over the individual stock pick because I'm getting the same exact return, but I'm assuming a lot more risk by owning the individual company. Now, the growth rate could potentially impact, You know, if I have an expectation that the growth rate is going to drastically increase in the future, maybe that could impact it. But for the most part, generally speaking, That's how I look at that. So after I do that, then what I'm doing is I go through an analysis of looking at the competitive advantage of the underlying assets of the business. Business schools will tell you that your risk is the volatility of the past performance of the stock, which I think is absolutely ludicrous, and so do a lot of other billionaires that we study. Your real risk in owning a business is the ability of the underlying assets, especially the assets that are bringing in all the revenues that are profitable, the impairment of those assets is your real risk. So let me just explain this in simple terms. So if you own a coffee shop on Main Street and there's a vacant building right across the street, and there's somebody in the business of trying to open up another competitive coffee shop right across from you, the endurance of your competitive advantage of your coffee is at stake. Your assets could be impaired that's how you got to look at the impairment of of the underlying assets, because that's where your real risk is. So then what I do is I look across. So let's say that the the first check mark of looking, or basically the second check mark of looking at the intrinsic value of the business, and I say, this has a high yield, I'm very interested in this company, but then I get to the second step in my checklist, which is understanding the impairment of the underlying assets, and I find that they could be greatly impaired. I might discount the return that I'm expected to get on that company. I make adjustments to what I think that that return is based off of the ability of the company's assets to be impaired. I then also consider at the very end, I look at the macro factors. So where are we at in the economy today? How do I expect the economy to perform moving forward from a global sense? I basically look at the momentum of the overall market And I also look at the momentum of the individual company and what that price action looks like, and then I basically make my final decision on whether I'm going to own it or not. Those are the main variables that I'm looking at as I go through the process. I would like to tell you that I do it in a linear manner in the same order every time. And maybe that's, to be honest with you, maybe that's a disadvantage with the way that I do things that I don't do it in a sequenced ordered way. But for me, I guess I'm, I'm trying to look at things more holistically, but I always cover all of those bases as I'm going through an individual stock pick. So yes, I have a checklist, I, I hit all that, but I don't necessarily do it in a sequential order.
3: Just really a quick note to what you said, and especially for people listening to this and say, wow, that's a ton of steps and, and how to best illustrate this. We have a completely free resource on TIP Academy. It's our intrinsic value index. and I think we have around, what, 40 or 50 picks. And when we use this process, do you talk about Preston? We'll make sure to link to that in the, in the show notes. And of course, people can also sign up to our email list where Preston and I would send out these picks on a monthly basis. So yes, I also use a checklist. And if I could just highlight a few of them and provide some comments to that, one of the first things I look at that is revenue. And, and I know that Preston also briefly mentioned that. If I could just add one more thing to that, I'm looking at if there's any revenue decline in the core business. One thing is that you might be looking at revenue, just see, well, that's going up. Yes, but what is the core business? And do you see a revenue decline there? What you see a lot of companies do is that they would acquire a a lot of new companies to sustain revenue growth. That does not always make a lot of sense to all companies. Sometimes it's a short-term win for a long-term pain. Of course, unless you have a company like Berkshire Hathaway, it is their forte to add new businesses to their existing business and thereby grow the revenue. It is uh, different for most businesses. So that's something I look at. Uh, I look at declining margins and I look at debt. And specifically about debt, and one thing I would like to highlight, if you use a checklist, it's very important to control the checklist and not let it control you. And if I can just provide one example of that, Is that I have this general rule that I would like the coverage ratio to be above 10, meaning that you can at least pay back your debt 10 times with your operating income. But it really depends. I mean, you can have interest coverage ratios that are at a comfortable level, but then whenever you look closer at how it's financed and if it's not fixed, if it's variable, and if you learn that they will finance new acquisitions next year with more valuable debt perhaps then you can't use that checklist to do many things. So I just wanted to put it out there in terms of if you have a checklist, you can't just say, check and then move on to the next one. You have to really understand what it is and then make the necessary provisions. And I know this sounds, might sound counterintuitive because the point about a checklist is that these are your rules and you shouldn't deviate from your rules because that's really when you're going to pin yourself into a corner. I do think, I have the opposite view. you, I think it's very important that you control the checklist uh, rather than the other way around.
1: So Thomas, thanks so much for asking your awesome question. To show our appreciation, we're going to give you a free subscription to our paid intrinsic value course on the TIP Academy website. This course goes into all the detail to show you how we calculate the intrinsic value of the business, basically what we were describing there. If anyone listening wants to check out this course, go to tipintrinsicvalue.com. That's tipintrinsicvalue.com to see the course and the contents contained in the course. So Thomas, thanks for your awesome question, and we hope you enjoyed the course. If anyone else out there wants to get their question played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com. There's a little button. You just got to click the record button. You record it. It automatically goes into our servers, and we see it pop up, and then we listen to all the questions that come in. And if your question gets played on the show, you get access to a course just like Thomas.
3: All right, guys, that was all the press down I had for this week's episode of The Investor's Podcast. We see each other again next week.
4: Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.
3: See you, I